So this is our house room on the philosophy of education. And we've done a lot of things over the last couple of weeks. We've spoken to Jason Crawford about industrial literacy. We've spoken to uh, Fawaz Almatruk on the pedagogy of the arts. Next week, we'll have Carrie Ellard talking about the history of education in the early U.S., in the 19th century in the U.S., who is doing super interesting work. And today we have someone different who I'm really, really excited to talk to. We have Anna Gatt, founder of Inner Intellect. She is, she'll tell us more about it in a minute. She herself is amazing and versatile. I'm probably going to miss things from this list, but she is a poet, filmmaker, entrepreneur, obviously, historian, judging by her Inner Intellect Salon topics, and great literary scholar. She has been a Girl Scout, I believe. She owns a printer. She can keep plants alive. She is a wonderful woman. So thank you for joining us, Anna. Thank you for reading my drunk tweets. This is a, <laughs> this is a true friendship. Yep. Yep. And we also have um, Katrina and Arno joining us, um, who I met via Interanelic Salons, at least partially. I think I met Katrina directly that way. I don't know. I think there's a couple of lines of connection, but they're both now colleagues of mine at Higher Ground Education. So welcome, Katrina and Arno. Perfect. Happy to be here. So why don't you tell us about Inner Intellect, Anna? Yeah, thank you so much. And first of all, I always imagine this conversation as a kind of Ennio Morricone music-themed showdown because you kind of keep stealing my fellow intellects and hiring them. <laughs> first of all, you have great taste. I have to give this to you. But also, Katrina Arno, great to see you. How is life at Matt's company? It's excellent. I cannot be happier to be part of both of these incredible communities. It's not either or. Can we just establish that like I didn't steal <laughs> them from you in the sense that you were no longer allowed to speak to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, I did go, we'll go I for did the sign, synthesis. Good. I did sign an exclusivity agreement, unfortunately. I am only part of HG now. <laughs> um, I think I described it to a friend uh, earlier this week as simultaneously exhilarating and exhausting my first two months. Uh, so all all good. Well, I'm very, very happy for you. And, um, you know, it's been so incredible to watch. I mean, I think one of the things that I love most about the AI is, you know, seeing people find their voices and their standing in life. And, you know, I watch people on Zoom, you know, across months and, and you see people bloom. You see people um, figure out what they want to be when they grow up and then actually also how to get there. So um, I'm really, really excited for you guys. And yeah, I have to tell you about my company. InterInteract started with a picnic in Dolores Park in San Francisco in May, no, April. I think it was 25th of April, 2019. I was working on a completely different startup, um, which, which we called Pinchin, which was an inside joke that nobody remembers anymore. So it's just an inconvenience now. And I thought, oh, on the side, I'm going to just run these events. Maybe there are some people who want to come together and have good conversations and kind of relive the exciting and entertaining part of academia, the reason why we like to go to school and, and why we like to engage in those kinds of discussions. And it was quite shocking to me that, you know, it was literally like I would just go out in a field and say, hey, guys, this is an interinteract salon, and like 200 people would show up. And I thought, oh, okay, so actually there are maybe, maybe there are more people who want to do this than I originally thought. And so we kept just shouting here, you know, in the various cities in the, in the world and then in cities that I've never been to and had salons in, you know, everywhere from Atlanta to Mumbai. And it was an incredible thing to see. I was still determined until the last moment to just do this on the side and because I have a proper job and I'm a grown up and, you know, I have to do something really boring that I hate for a living. And then I thought, yeah, but nobody wants that thing that I hate. Everybody wants to do the thing that I love. And I thought, 
no, this is too good. This can't be true. Um, I'm sure I'm just, you know, uh, deceiving myself here. And then I thought, okay, let's try. And kind of gradually and all at once, it evolved into the AI. And, you know, we started monetizing quite early on. So we said, you know, it's going to be affordable. It's going to be accessible. It's going to be open to any level of knowledge in any topic in the world that people actually want to come together and have conversations about. But you have to pay. This was not a very you know, easy or intuitive decision at the beginning, but we find that if we run free events, people don't show up. Um, yeah, it's much easier yeah. to flake on something if you haven't paid 30 bucks to go. And so we thought, okay, can we create a system where you know, there is a, a very low or even free entry for students and people who can't even afford maybe paying five bucks to come to a salon or you know, nine bucks a month for a membership. Um, so that's how we started building and experimenting with topic, experimenting with the format. I started training the hosts very early on. I think our first uh, training was in last August. So basically two months after the first member hosted salon. And I basically devised a set of norms around how we run these events and how that would play out. And now I don't train hosts. Now hosts train hosts. So, um, that's awesome. you know, we try to think about it as a kind of positive pyramid of passing on, on knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, you've created a very personalized system of scale. Can you just, I mean, just for, I think probably most people listening will know, but we are recording this and so it will get wider purchase eventually. Like what is a salon exactly? So when I, I mean, when I think of salon, I think of enlightenment cafes where there are lectures and science experiments and poetry readings and people gather, like what is an inner intellect salon? Yeah, so you don't have to be a French lens holder in your boudoir to actually run a salon. I mean, we currently run uh, these online discussions around three hours long, usually starting with an introduction, very heavily focused on equal speaking time. So anybody can come, learn, engage and, and share their opinions and, and experiences. This was really modeled on, you know, my doing this in my own living room. So how to have, you know, 10 to 30 people in a room, some of whom will be complete strangers. And make sure that everybody has a good time. Make sure that everybody leaves with more knowledge on the subject than they arrived with and that they make friends, that you can build long-term, you know, friendships or collaborations with the people that you've met. And that is a fulfilling, enjoyable experience. You know, I, I used to joke that, yo, Interinsect is lax and this should be decadent and you should have a glass of wine and put your feet up. It should be in the evening. So this is the last thing you do on that day. You're not rushing anywhere. You know, it's not going to squeeze in, into our calendar between two more important things, which is not really the case now, because if somebody is in, I don't know, Kuala Lumpur, you know, they will have be engaging in salons uh, from a different time zone. But I got such backlash over calling my own company Lux that I just stopped doing that. But I still think it. I just don't say that loud anymore, except now on a recorded conversation. But um, yeah, it's a, it became kind of sub rosa that we are a, a luxury product. That's interesting. Arno, did you want to say something a minute ago? No, I switched my audio quality to high, and I think oh, I, I see. came back. Um, <laughs> Got it. But yeah, I don't actually remember exactly when the first salon happens, but I think the first one that you did in London, I signed up and then had to back out. Um, and it's just, yeah, it was just such a great thing to see someone put care and effort into curating a space, which is always my big complaint on online spaces. Feels like there's not enough care and effort put into, yeah, small private spaces. Yeah. I mean, my experience in running a salon, this was probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit less, was I didn't really know what they were. I think I had been to one, but it was on a, salons have topics, like, and the topics are things like 
the history of war in 19th century France, or um, in my case, the topic was Montessori education. Like, who is Maria Montessori? What is Montessori education? And I was like, great, I'm giving like a lecture, running a seminar, and I like put together readings, and I like made a whole plan. And then, I mean, fortunately, Anna joined my salon and saved it. But people just wanted to you're talk. Being, you're, uh, being too, you're being too humble. But anyway, I have to interject <laughs> here because so we have on the stage, we have out of five, four people are interinsect hosts. And yeah. in the room, we have, I think, at least six people here are interinsect hosts. So, um, okay. yeah, you will be preaching to the choir. Yep. Yep. But yeah, I mean, it is part of what's interesting about the format and part of what I want to talk about is that it is topical. So it's a kind of, it, it is a directed discussion and there are background readings and people do learn. It is like it's structured enough so that I would think of it as education, but it's also a very different format than what you would think of as education. It's like nothing like, I don't know, like a master class course or an evening class that you would take. It's much more social and informal than that. So we have a couple of frameworks, I think, based on which you can prepare for your salon, based on which you can, you know, determine what to expect at any given when you go you go to so the first one I'm happy to share the first one of how is it called the four rules of hosting the first one is the imperfect host so nobody wants to listen to a priest nobody wants to listen to a professor it has to be the opposite of ex-cathedra you know if you're doing it live have the projector not working spill your drink break a heel do whatever you do to kind of lower the stress in the room I, you know, it should not be competitive. It should not be a, a finite game. It does not have an end goal. It's not education in that sense. It's not networking in that sense. You don't have a metric, right? You should, your metric should be whether you had a good time in the way that you, you imagined having a good time. And so the first one is the imperfect host. The second one is what I call stickiness. So when I lived in London, which is a huge city, right? And one of my main kind of social experiences was that I would, you know, go to an event, I would go to a party, I would go to whatever, a conference, and you end up having really long and sometimes deep conversations with people. You know, you open up, you listen, you remember this person's life or, you know, whatever they choose to share it with you. And then you maybe even need to share, you know, contact details. And you never, ever, 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 ever see that person ever again. And this happens over and over again. And, you know, after 15 times, you're completely burnt out and you will become this kind of, you know, white walker going into, um, you know, social events and just kind of half listening, half engaging with zero investment in the other person. And I thought, this is terrible. Like humans are not built for this physically, emotionally, economically in any way. You cannot be happy, you know, without the hope for the, the repetition with somebody that you had a good time with. And so I started experimenting with, you know, how do I ensure that even before an event starts, people understand that, you know, if you want, you don't have to, but if you want to see these people again, you can. That there will be a mailing list, that there is a follow-up channel, that they are in the community. And, you know, having this emotional safety does wonders. I mean, as, as a Montessori professional, you know this, does wonders for the intellectual Side. I mean, your intellect is not fully, you know, divorced from your emotions. If you're feeling uncomfortable, if you're unsure of yourself, if there's anxiety, then you, your mind is not going to wonder. You're not going to arrive at, you know, novel conclusions or whatever. So that's number two. Then we have what I call ritual space, which is the basic foundations of an interintact salon are always the same. Because, you know, we, you kind of notice it in church, in school, in your favorite cafe, that if you don't have to worry about the fundamentals, you will be able to relax, you will be able to make connections, you will be able to think. Um, so it's very important to me that the, kind of the, 
the fundamentals in an IR salon are super boring. Like we do so many super boring things during the day to ensure that it's always the same. Because that, that's the thing that, you know, liberates the faculties of yours that will then create that extra unique thing that can be created during something that is live and unprecedented and unpredictable. Um, I always say that you can't really have a good, you're not going to dance with abandon in a house that might fall apart. But most events, especially online events, are very shifty. So it was very important to me to remove that. And the fourth one is, I don't really have a good name for it because I like to call it anchoring, but anchoring means something else in psychology. But it's basically the notion that, you know, most anxieties about other people, especially like strangers or semi-strangers, arise when you have too much space to imagine stuff about this other person. So like, why did she look at me like that? Oh, I'm sure it's my shirt or whatever is, uh, you know, uh, your anxiety for that day. And so we always start with a lot of truthfulness. After 30 minutes in intern tax zone, you should not have that much, you know, space for imagining negative things about each other because people come in, they share their life story. They will be very upfront, open and usually extremely kind in, you know, how they describe their experiences or their opinions. And that contributes to this, you know, enormous sense of relaxation that you know, you know who you're dealing with. I think people can deal with almost any kind of difference in opinion, lifestyle, worldview, if they know what they are dealing with. If it's a little bit sinister and there is potentially a kind of shadowy edge to it, you become much more, you know, engaged in your self-preservation than, um, than opening up to, to other people. Um, so that's how we think about it. Wrong. I always say that, you know, pilots have this thing that's aviate, navigate, communicate. We have facilitate, moderate, mediate. And 99% of the time you, you facilitate and then sometimes you have to moderate, but we never get to mediate. So we never, you know, it's, it's basically your responsibility as the host to, to stop the situation from escalating to a point where, where that would happen. But, you know, we did salons during the storming of the Capitol and then the hosts come and they are like, look, I have a salon listed on the day. People will be half watching the news. What do I do? I'm not, you know, a political commentator. What do I do if people ask things? And then you're like, you know, Nobody thinks you are. Just be a human and, and be there for people to, you know, if, if there's a piece of breaking news during a live entertainment, then you, you just have to deal with it. Yeah, I want to talk about this. I mean, one of the things that really stands out to me about DII is how non-political of a community it is, which I want to um, actually want to return to that. But just on the principles that you just expounded, so the imperfect host, this, you know, I don't know exactly how to summarize the second one, but this connection and safety and belonging that comes with kind of getting to know people, prepared space, the kind of fundamentals are solid. And then anchoring is good. I actually like anchoring. I don't like anchoring as a bias in psychology, but something like that. Let's, like getting, let's use this word and like make it our own. Anchoring. The, the yeah. Anchoring. anchoring yeah. <laughs> anchoring 2.0. Which is yeah. Nice. Anchoring 2.0. <laughs> anchoring 2.0. It's like specifically knowing and kind of being vulnerable as individuals and letting that serve as a kind of foundation or common ground. I mean, these are principles of pedagogy. I mean, I like, I definitely think that teachers just, we call them guides, but just to take an example, like you are imperfect and you have to wear that on your sleeve and model what it means to be a human being and to make mistakes. You are building connections over time, preparing the space and preparing the environment is, I think, the bulk of what the educator, the good educator does. Like it's a huge part of the work. And vulnerability and individuality, um, kind of connecting with people one-on-one, -on -one, that kind of anchoring, like it is the foundation. It's the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of learning, of tough love, of all the other things that we talked about. 
I'm curious. I mean, you've talked a lot about how, like, look, you don't want to come in with like, like, you want people to enjoy themselves. Like this is a kind of entertainment or luxury thing, or you're kicking back and you're drinking wine, but the salons are topical. Like, how does that, I mean, like, I definitely think of them as learning experiences. How does that integrate with what you're saying in terms of like, is it like a kind of like the topic kind of gets people going or is it like the binding principle or binding purpose that's still not, it's not kind of outcomes oriented enough to overwhelm people? Or how do you think about the kind of learning component of the salons and the topical component? Yeah, that's a great question. Can I just reflect for a second on the question of vulnerability? Because yeah. I have a personal beef with this word. And it's oh, a I do too. I hate it. Mini private mission because I think, I mean, I don't want to be vulnerable as a Saturday night show you know i want to be vulnerable with the people i love most in life and in specific it's, moments it's, it's, it's such yeah. a, well i think it's a misnomer of vulnerability because it's, like it's, it's not, not it's, it's not true about. it's inaccurate yeah it's, um, you want to be human you want is, to be is complex Gina in the audience is, is my wife in the audience yeah she is so yeah. we agree on Hi, this um, <laughs> <laughs> so she's she's being asked to speak i'm wondering when will be the moment matt when um, you're like summoning the psychotherapist uh, into um, the room but um, yeah but like i mean it may for that to happen but by being vulnerable, you're actually like putting yourself in a position of strength. And so it, it's just kind of and avoiding vulnerability is fragility. So that's my beef with it. But yeah, continue. Yeah, you want to be human, right? You want to be not a, a 2D character who has to perform some kind of a role in the room. You want to be there as your full self because that's when you can, you know, dynamically react to whatever comes up. Um, you don't have, that's when you won't feel that, you know, 90% of your personality has to be kind of locked up in some box during, during the conversation. So we kind of know in advance which salons will be more topical, right? So I'm very, uh, <laughs> I'm very dictatorial in an editorial, from an editorial perspective. So we are not a fully free platform. We review salons and, and we make suggestions if we feel that, you know, this, might you know you can't really list a salon that already takes a side you can list a salon that deals with a question you can you know um, as a host you can signal your personal preference but you can't you know you can't use a salon for missionary work whether that's for marketing or religion or politics and i am very very strict about this when we know in advance that um, that some people will come and treat this topic as a source of controversy although that's never all of the people, it's some people, then my, as a host, what I do is usually kind of build the, the intro questions and the first hour of the conversation. I'm, you know, making sure that um, all the different points of view can come out at the beginning. I will give you a couple of examples if that's all right. We did a salon, I think it was last August, about open borders. That was when Brian Kaplan published a lot of essays on the whole question of open borders. And of course, because of COVID, this you know, became suddenly much more multifaceted problem. And so I was kind of uh, leading the room. And the intro question was like, as always, like, who are you? Where are you from? And I asked every participant that when they are introducing themselves, they would add the story of their most memorable crossing of a border. And then we had maybe like 17, 18 people in the room. And then you would have, you know, the 60 year old British guy who would be like, oh, I was backpacking in Italy in the 60s and I was wearing an after police t-shirt and suddenly the police stopped me and I had to run it like it's like a Rod Stewart song and then you have you know uh, the entrepreneur from Pakistan who gets stopped at Toronto airport and they ask her you know she's traveling to Stanford to give a talk and they ask her you know are people from your culture allowed to travel alone and you know and then we have another person who's like oh, once I, I don't know, I missed my flight and whatever happened. And then the third person, fourth person will say, 
I'm trying to travel to my wife and I have to, you know, skip the transfer in Tunisia because they would stop me because I'm, you know, coming from Nigeria and you can't just, you know, stop um, at the Tunis airport uh, without getting into trouble. And by the time we went through the entire room, you kind of know what the conversation will be about. And you will know that, you know, this conversation is not about agenda. There are people here with, you know, extremely poignant personal stories and very um, often very difficult personal experiences. But there are a couple of salons um, around gender, for instance. And, you know, I, I don't know, I like to troll the room and be like, okay, so intro question is, you know, when did you feel the most equal in your life? And then, you know, you have the woman goes and she says, when my father said that he was proud of me. And then the guy says, Mm, I don't know. I can't think of anything. And then the other woman says, when I got promoted. And then the guy says, I don't know what to say. And then the woman says, you know, when I won the award. And by the time 30 people have introduced themselves that way, you kind of know what you will be talking about. And it's extremely unlikely that somebody will be there and will go against the entire room. It becomes very costly. So you raise the, to kind of put my economist head on, you raise the price very high that it would take yeah. to start drawing the room that way. Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, I mean, we are talking about the political topic. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I know enough intellect members to know that like there's not a con- it's not like there's a consensus political view amongst intellect members or hosts. It's pretty diverse the group, um, in terms of like Republicans and Democrats and Marxists and Libertarians and Whigs and Tories. Oh, it's super super diverse. Yeah. Yeah, and so the point is not that you're. The way that you're making it sound, it's like, yeah, we kind of like raise the stakes on controversy and, and kind of dampen it down. But really, I think what you're doing is kind of personalizing it and setting a certain kind of tone for productive discussion. And you're also, I mean, there are kind of, I don't know, like, do you think that there are like transcendent principles of the I, like, like politics, transcendent principles? Like what, like, what are the values of the II? Like, how do you think about kind of what unites the members? Uh, that's a wonderful question. You know, I say to my hosts that your number one job in the room is to keep things complicated. Things are complicated. If it's not complicated in your room, then you messed up. <laughs> you know, it should not, people should not come together to talk about family and love and nationalism and literature and leave the room with like a firmly held opinion. And like, this is how it is. This is what the poet meant. No, then you messed up. Come back and try again. So I think, you know, what we do, I think what we hold as our key value is the beauty of diversity in the original democratic sense, right? Like we we celebrate the difference. I know this sounds very pompous, but that's all we do. Like if you if you list a salon about immigration, you will sell it out in three minutes. All people think about all the time is being an outsider, being reinventing yourself, people building themselves based on their ideals and values as you know incredibly special people. And this self-authoring and the responsibilities that come with it are very, very kind of key to how we deal with things. And I think if you live that way yourself, it's very hard to look at other people and not see the same effort and the same difficulties and the same uniqueness of that experience. It's very hard to be fully normative when you're consciously exposed to the, the complexities of, of life and the complexities of people and, you know, how many people in my community started from zero at some point? How, we have so many people who left religions, for instance, in the II, Muslim fundamentalists, Mormons, you know, and some people actually went back to religion, went back to another religion. But this kind of Haitian sense of having left the matrix, having 
understood at some point that, you know, you are born into some kind of social hallucination and there is an edge to it and you can leave. And then if you liked it there, you can go back, but it should be your, you know, it should be based on agency and choice. So I think this, the complexities and the, the flexibilities of, of human organization are always in the focus. And you can see how, you know, we work in this really decentralized, passing the baton way, right? Um, I mean, I have, you know, an editorial veto and we do some minor moderation in the forum, almost never, but because we don't have to, but if there was something, you know, against our code of conduct, then we would step up. But it's almost fully, you know, kind of, it just works in itself. Katrina, it looks like wants to chime in and then I have a million questions about what you just said. <laughs> yeah. So there's something that happens really naturally as part of the II that I've noticed. Um, when you join the Discord, there's the introduction channel and everyone shares a bit about themselves. And something that I've really, really admired about this community is when people introduce themselves, everyone's so willing to share all parts of themselves, you know, like different tracks of industries they've been in, different interests. I mean, it's just the community attracts this type of individual who is un. I wouldn't say unafraid, but just it's a space in which people can bring their whole selves. And at, at no point have I ever felt that maybe, you know, maybe a host um, tends to host on one specific topic, but no one's trying to be an expert on one thing. I just find it really interesting that this very natural sort of ritual of how we introduce ourselves, especially that new people coming to the community already pick up on this, you know, I'm going to introduce all parts of myself and bring that to the table and know that will be embraced and I just think it's really beautiful how that happens so naturally. And I just think that goes back to the why it doesn't get super political. It's just not, the community just attracts this very open-minded type of individual that is not seeking to be a sage on the stage. It's not seeking to be, you know, to have all their opinions proven right. It's just this natural open-mindedness that I honestly think that like, and even looking at your Twitter, Anna, like the, the scope and breadth of the type of information you share, like we all are sort of like examples for one another. And it's just like, who the members are as individuals is such a beacon to continue to invite that kind of person and attract that kind of person into the community. So, yeah, I just think that's such a great like way. One great example of how that open-mindedness characteristic shows up in our culture. Thank you so much. I think that's really correct. And, you know, I like to say that curation is taste, right? What you like, what you choose is your taste. But I think it's also true that interest is curation. And, you know, a person who is not interested in um, this multitude of voices and, and stories and, and intellectual, you know, I don't know, obsessions, right? That are kind of like our main ammo. They will come to our forum and they will be bored. We sometimes have people, they come in and they are like, they sometimes some people try to post something like maybe not political, but like they try to be edgy and nobody cares. <laughs> and it's kind of just like, either they leave or they adapt, right? And I always envisioned, you know, if we do this weird kind of infinite public university that I'm building, then, you know, we should have a strong community who, you know, keep up the norms. And you guys keep up the norms via your interests and via your personal values, which reject certain types of behavior. And, you know, I mean, bad behavior arises in environments where there is some reward to it. Twitter has that level of toxicity because if you're an idiot on Twitter, you will get a lot of followers. And I don't know, um, some right-wing YouTuber will follow you back and you can tell your friends, like, you know, there are the systems built to encourage you to do that kind of thing. We are not. We, we are something... for, for, you know, encouraging, I don't want to say good behavior because I don't think it's that and that sounds boring, but yeah. Strong norms, right? The humanness. Humanness and allowing other people also to be that. 
this is something that is, I feel, just relevant more generally in, in education, where there's always very small scale experiments that are utopian and that work great. And I feel like there's never enough intellectual power put behind the just the sheer difficulty in scaling uh, really great education. Um, so I'm curious how you think about scaling generally, Anna. I'm writing an investment memo now, so I think about this a lot. I do think that Interinsect won't be able to scale in like a SaaS model. So we will scale via hubs. So what we're working on now is creating many small pockets of Interinsect around the world, which individually as kind of nodes in the system all work like we do now and make sure that there is, you know, there's a communication between um the other nodes and maybe the HQ. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't have to explain decentralization to you. I think Arno and you know much more about this than myself. But that's how I think about it. You know, we can make more salons. We can't really make big salons. So you can't, for instance, if you're a host and you want to be really good and you want to make a lot of money and be famous and get invited to all sorts of things, what you do is not necessarily opening the door and saying, 3,000 people shall come into my Zoom. You say, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to host regularly and I'm going to build this up. I'm going to become a habit for other people so that, you know, they get used to, for instance, we, we do the re- Reading the Great series with Tommy Collison and Dave McDowell. And, you know, their audience every other week, you know, will come together and it's part of their lives that, you know, Sunday night, they are going to be talking about Dante. And that actually becomes part of people's lives and that habit is enormously powerful. It just also feels like such a better way. That's maybe too strong of a statement, but from a perspective of like further experimentation on topics and weirdness, I guess, in general, it feels like it supports a a lot more weirdness than the kind of, well, what you call SaaS scaling, right? Of just infinite scale. I'm always there for the weirdnesses, you know, but it's so interesting. I mean, Arno, I met you at a burger dinner in London, right? Through Asteroids Saku, and you guys were running a similar thing. And then the, the Matt Clifford book club, right, following the Stanford lecture. So, so an interesting thing in the AI is we get so many people coming in who tried to do the book club thing, who tried to do the salon thing, you know, locally or when they went to university or et cetera, et cetera. And then they are like, oh, OK, so you guys are actually building it big. That's such a, I love the example of the book club because I guess just for my experience was essentially the way you got high commitments is you basically discounted the first two sessions, right? In the first session, you have 100 people show up. The second, you have 20. And by the third session, you have the people that you actually want to have the conversation with. And I think that's probably the most interesting thing uh, to me with interintellect, similarly to why I think like physical um, universities are so interesting is you, you have the high cost action to a certain extent, like the filtering happened prior to the salon, in my mind, with the interintellect, where you have to show interest in the forum, you have to show interest in the kinds of topics that gets discussed. It's just a bit of a, it just creates the kind of high trust culture that you've been talking about. I never thought of us as a kind of battle royale, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting. I I was just thinking about this the other day that, you know, I went to the the first university I went to was just the University of Budapest. It's a great university, but you kind of go there for free and don't taxpayers money. It's perfect. So what happens is that the first year you have these swaths of people, right, who are accepted. It's quite selective, but still you have quite a lot of people who start and then they filter out. And it's kind of the opposite of the U.S. system, right, where the, the entry is extremely selective. And then, then it's almost impossible to, I don't know, get kicked out of Harvard, right, once you're in. Whereas where I went, you know, when it's kind of a, 
not a very logical system when it comes to time, because the only way you can signal, you know, stamina and skill is via just staying for five years. And people actually stay, right? So it's like a, they tire you out and only like the best people get their degrees, but it takes a lot of time. It's interesting. Yeah, we have a similar thing with the, with the series, but there's a country example now, which is the story of philosophy series, which two uh, London-based hosts run. It follows the Will um, Duran book chapter by chapter. It's um, a fantastic series. And they have a different pattern. So they have a pattern where people are like, I don't care about Plato, but I will come for Spinoza, you know, and you can see just the divergence, you know, between one salon or one salon series and the other. Every topic, every host will have their own vibe and their own, you know, audience and the attractions and, and, you know, expectations are tend to be very different. Yeah. I mean, part of what's interesting is that that phenomenon of kind of like hyper differentiation is part of what you're scaling. So I've barely made a dent in my list of questions for Anna. I want to talk about the good life for adults and generalism and education and a bunch of other things, but I also do want to take questions. So if you have a question, go ahead and raise your hand and ask it. And I will continue to ask Anna my questions until you do and be selfish in that way. So just on this generalism point, switching tack a little bit. So when you're in school as a kid, you are expected to learn a little bit of everything. And you're expected to kind of like get the foundations of like literature and history and science. And that slowly becomes something more specialized over time. I mean, the, the kind of expectation in today's world is that you become a specialist in some way, you specialize for economic reasons, for intellectual reasons, but that's part of what it means to live in a complex society. And then there's the weirdos like you and I, I think, who we want to kind of maintain generalism in, in some, I mean, it's almost like a specialization in and of itself. Like the people that want to still be generalists, those are specialists in the modern world. But that's, I mean, I think that that's part of the appeal of the II is that you have these salons that are on topics of general interest. I mean, even how you described the immigration salon, it wasn't an immigration salon. It was like a human condition. How do I invent myself and reinvent myself and move and kind of navigate my yeah, way in the world? We definitely salon. have like a latent existentialism going on. We pretend we don't, but we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, but that kind of, you know, humanist generalism, like that is a value and an approach. And I just, I don't know, wondered if you could riff on that. Like, I think it's like, in some ways, it's the opposite of what you see in a lot of learning communities. Like you see tons and tons and tons of learning communities that are focused on like being coding boot camps or specific things or, and fewer that are kind of general interest, a little bit more existential or philosophical or kind of wide ranging. Hmm. Yeah. So you could definitely, um, you know, pinpoint uh, what we do by saying, you know, we lower the price of generalism for adults. And this might just arise from the fact that I am personally myself a generalist. And of course, like all my skills and my flaws get built into my company. And so, you know, if I'm all over the place, then we will have a lot of all over the place laws probably on, on that week. You could track my mood probably from, from the Southern calendar. It's very interesting. I mean, I see it as a, as a tragedy that, you know, we, you know, we offer higher education to an unprecedented number of people. Right. We've never had this many people engaged in, in adult education as we have today. We bring kids into academia. You know, I'm, maybe I'm a very conservative startup founder. I'm not one of the people who, you know, want to dump academia and, I don't know, um, create a Silicon Valley worshipping online courses. I think a good university is amazing and people should have a couple of years to immerse themselves in 
things that they will never have that much time to allocate to later on ever in their lives, right? But it's a kind of tragedy that, you know, you go through maybe two to five years of enormous joy. Like, I remember my university, like, this was awesome. I mean, I'd never read so much ever since then. It was amazing. And then people get kind of kicked out of university. And now you're supposed to just, like, give up your intellectual life, right? You're supposed to go and get a job and be serious and read some newsletters and maybe under some pseudonym comment something idiotic under a blog post. And that's it. You know, if you're really well off and you're in the right city, you can go to theater and, and conferences sometimes. But, like, you know, don't, you know, manage your expectations. And I think that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, that sucks so much. Why would I want to do that? That sounds terrible. And then if you want to do that as a living, right, if you want to be an intellectual, then the price goes way up, right? Like we basically have a system that selects only for upper middle class and above. And no. to me, that's unbearable. And I think no. I can change that. And there are other people, other companies working on creating a marketplace and creating, you know, access and the possibility to say, I want to teach the public, which to me is the highest level of human good. And, you know, you should, you should be able to do it in a way that doesn't conflict with every other area of your life, because you're not supposed to give up everything else for this, right? That would, um, yeah. from my a very balanced point of view, that would be too much to ask. Yeah, I like the idea of lowering the cost. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, that narrative that you just laid out, it's like you go to school, you typically go to college, then you become an adult. And there's this abrupt change where you go from kind of being somebody who is in some sort of learning community and whose life in some significant way revolves around that, revolves around school in some way, to something that's very not that. And it's a pretty abrupt transition. And I have spent a lot, and you know, we at Higher Ground more generally have spent a lot of time thinking about smoothing that at the front end by making school more about work and real life and less about school and kind of like gradually kind of entering into, you know, like a life of work and productivity and specialization. But it seems like what you're doing is the opposite on the back end. It's like, yeah, but like adult life should be more like school. Like there should be ongoing learning and intellectual discussions and intellectualism and generalism. And for, at least for those that want it, like that component of school, like that is part of the good life for many people. And there isn't really that much that fills that function. I know it's I, counterintuitive, but what the internet proves is that people are enormously engaged intellectually. I mean, just look at what's going on online. And you can like kind of lower the standards and just look at a simple, I don't know, Facebook group or something. Like people have a lot of things to say. And to say that, oh, we have 8 billion people who are all dumb and let's listen to these five, you know, guys from 60 year old guys from New Hampshire. I don't think that we're, we will get the best ideas in the world. The opposite. So much of, I guess, why I'm so very happy to have encountered the intern intellect is just, I think most people underestimate just how important it is to have a very particular set of peers. And when you're doing adult learning, it feels like it's such a barrier to so many people of just being alone uh, when they want to do it. And it feels so like I was reflecting on this before this session. I feel like I know the people that I've been in salons with better than people that I regularly interact with on Twitter. It's just a, such a different kind of experience. One of the most striking pieces of feedback that I keep getting, and, and this is really, really shocking to me because this is a phrase that keeps coming back completely in the, independently from people, is that they used to be intellectual orphans until they found us. And I remember the first time I heard it and I was like, you know, it really affected me. I, I definitely understand this. You know, when I moved to London, I was a new immigrant. I had like one suitcase of stuff and a bunch of books and 
you know, my intellectual life was, you know, traveling on the Northern line and 5 a.m. in the morning to work and, and just like reading books and there was nobody to discuss them with. I, you know, I moved away from, you know, my old university friends and I didn't have a space where I could host people, right? I mean, in London, you live with so many people, it's extremely difficult to just have a huge empty living room. And I remember that kind of loneliness. And I learned a lot and it was really useful for me, I think, to be just that incredibly lonely for a couple of years. But it makes me very perceptive of this feeling in other people. And I don't think anybody should feel that, feel that way, right? Um, I don't think it's normal. And if anybody tells you it is, then, then just like, you know, run, <laughs> run. It's not true, run. Just to add to that, I remember my, when I found my first salon, it definitely felt like, it was actually Matt Bateman's salon on Montessori. That was my first salon to attend. And it really felt like this feeling. Really? That was your first salon? It was my first salon, yeah. That's so cool. Oh <laughs> my God. And, then, and then you and mine went and did all your education salons as well. Yeah. And I, we oh actually God, met I know through so our education <laughs> salons. Yeah. So I remember it very much felt like this coming home feeling because the last time I was in, I mean, you know, my, my university campus was great, but my best sort of Socratic dialogue um, educational experience was in high school. So I can easily say, like, I had been yearning for that type of community for a very long time. And when I found that I could experience this again in my adulthood, it was instant click for me. And I knew I'd be so such a big part of this community. So, yeah, I've told Anna her imp- the impact of this community on me. But um, once you as an intellectual, as a former intellectual orphan, like I can't understate, overstate the so importance much. of finding this. Yeah. This is amazing. I mean, you know, to, to go back to the transcendental values, maybe it's more of like my transcendental values than necessarily the, you know, um, the values of the company or, you know, I can't speak for thousands of people in the II. But I definitely, you know, I, I believe that we make homes and we make families and we make magic. You have to be very open to uncertainty and the unpredictable, which is a, a kind of inherent characteristic of, of live events. You never know what's going to happen. You have to be okay with silence. <laughs> I think this is our big difference from like Netflix and Clubhouse. We have silence in rooms when people think. We even have silent salons where you just come together and you're there for three hours with each other. And you know we turn off the camera- cameras but leave on the sound so you you can hear other people breathe and like put books around and you know and it's incredibly intimate. And I just I love seeing. You know, that if we step back and allow for this suppleness to open up, then things suddenly come alive. And to me, that's, I mean, this is one of the sources of magic for me personally. And, you know, that will always get me through however hard my day (laughs) may be. And the other is, you know, I mean, the first time I, you know, switched on Zoom to run an IA salon was on the 14th of March, 2020, when the New York City salon and that was supposed to be in the, in a home in Chelsea couldn't happen because of the pandemic. That was kind of my executive decision there. And I said, you know, we can't responsibly hold an, an in-person salon anymore because of, of, of um, the coronavirus. And then we moved it online. And then it was a salon, only people in New York City and me. And I was like, oh, wow, I could never have gone to this salon because I was doing some other stuff in Europe. But now I'm here. So maybe, you know, maybe it's actually a good thing to do some online salons where people can come together from different time zones and and different geographies. And since then, I mean, I look at people, you know, every day and they, I mean, they look so good, (laughs) you know, compared with how everybody looked one year ago. I mean, people have blossomed. Like I look at 
happy faces. I look at people who, you know, found their jobs like you guys in the II, who found their life partners, who found, who moved to another city, who quit a job, who, you know, went and, you know, like one of our wonderful hosts in, based in Dublin, she became a sound engineer because she found a fellow sound engineer in, in the II and was like, oh, I can actually do this. Like in six months, I can do a training. And now she's a sound engineer. And you know, it's almost, it's so overwhelming to me emotionally to like, just like look at this, you know, Richard's scary kind of book that you open and like the rabbit is sending to the garden and the bear is going to the dentist. And it's like, you have this city, right? Where people are happy and, and flourishing. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I just had to like shut up for a little bit and let it happen. That's amazing. I love the Richard Scary book analogy. Yeah. I mean, so something that's jumping out to me as you're talking is how I mean, you talked a lot about how you kind of set the conditions with your principles of hosting and your, and your kind of principles of the inner intellect in a way that really enables people to be their best self and to connect in a way that's vulnerable and non-defensive and, and positive. But just listening to you talk, I think, I mean, you are an optimist, or maybe that's not how you would describe it exactly, but you I'm um, a have a optimist. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, okay. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, a realistic optimist. I know you have to work for it, but yeah, that is <laughs> Yeah, but that's, I mean, there's a kind of like positivity about like the internet and Zoom and conversations with strangers and adulthood. And then, you know, kind of stemming from that, like, I mean, you've said a couple of times now that you love seeing people bloom and find their voice and kind of find their home, whether that's on like, you know, obviously on the II and in our salons, but also beyond that. And again, I'm just struck by like how school like that is in a certain way like i mean it is especially if you think about higher ed like that is like being like finding yourself in some sense i mean i hate that term finding yourself but that is one of the values of education especially higher education or high school education as students are getting older and that's something that you're really trying to systematically achieve with the people that you're finding and drawing into your community that's very true and you know i think school is more important to kids who don't necessarily have the best actual homes right so if your home is not happy or if your home is not, you know, if your family, you know, some children feel extremely detached from their family, it's, you know, maybe you are born into a family where people don't understand you or you are very different, you know, then school becomes, you know, this garden of Eden of opportunity where you might be discovered by a teacher and you might find mentors and friends. And yes, absolutely. This kind of proactive building of your tribe and your family and, and, and doing it until you feel that you are truly yourself. To me, that's very important. And we all know this, like you all, I think everybody knows, you know, when you are not being yourself and when you're in an environment where you just have to spend, I don't know, 30% of your energy trying to be somebody you're not um, because you're just more tired and more unsure of yourself. And so building systems where, you know, people can just like be themselves. <laughs> I know it sounds very tried, but it's really difficult to do, right? It's yeah, really I don't think it's tried. Yeah, I think it's really not right. I mean, if you, like if you think about, I mean, to get a tiny bit political, like if you think about the kind of original conception of the project of the United States as a place where people are free to pursue their own happiness. But it's somehow a system that enables people to do that and enables people to do that without conflict, like in harmony. And everybody's doing that. Like that is like a crazy creative achievement. And that redounds, that problem kind of recurses down to different kinds of systems where people are working together or learning together or growing together in different ways. And you're trying to like, you're trying to like have a system that is 
like systematizing customization almost. I mean, that's to me, that's basically the cornerstone of democratic arrangement, right? If you understand that you are a city yourself, right? I mean, not just on the molecular level, but intellectually, right? We have, you know, we house a bunch of different people and some of those people hate each other <laughs> and are in intense competition, especially in the morning. You have the intense competition in the morning. You know, if you acknowledge that, then you will be able to tolerate difference in your environment. Somebody who wants to reduce themselves into a singular being will be extremely, you know, feel, will feel very, very threatened mm. from some of those characters popping up in their vicinity. So, you know, I don't feel like an educator in, in my community, but if I want to represent the principle that maybe this kind of the pluralism of the individual as the key to the pluralism of the group. Do you think, I mean, I've kind of asked you this, but let me just ask you straight. Do you think of Interintellect as an education community or as an education company? Or is, it, is that not accurate? Oh, it's so difficult because, okay, so on the daily basis, we are a show business company, right? So if you look at my day, it's the same as if I worked in like live music, right? Like when I lived in live music, it was very similar, right? You wake up and you do some admin and then your day gets more and more extroverted and then you have an extroverted evening and then you come down, right? So you have this kind of arc every day. Um, it's very typical of athletes and, and, and performers. I mean, if anything, weirdly, I think of my company more of a political organization, not partisan politics, but something that represents and promotes values um, around the world. And, huh. you know, it's, it's not religious. We don't, you know, you don't have to be loyal and we're not going to, you know, harass your family. <laughs> but it's political in the sense that, you know, if you like this, if you like these values, Come and vote for us. Hang out with us. It's going to be great. That's awesome. I, I mean, maybe that's why I feel so much synergy. Go ahead or no. I do need to head off, unfortunately. But I guess in my, I kind of feel like you have to have become a particular, well, a number of potential people, I think, to really appreciate and really dive into something like the intellect. And it feels like, well, to me, at least education is probably a step before you've become or you're in the process of becoming a particular person. It feels like there's components of hard skills, which I think are, and you, you just have to, to have grown into, yeah, into more of an established person, uh, even if you contain multitudes, as Anna, you're saying, like, I couldn't have appreciated the intellect at 15 in very meaningful ways. And it feels like I had to have things under my belt and skills and experiences under my belt to come into this community and actually uh, understand and appreciate it. Whereas education feels like it's more guided to me, at least it feels like it probably helps you get to a place where, yeah, you, you have become some more actively than communities like the Internet Effect or political groups, as Anna says. That's really interesting. If anybody has any questions for Anna, now is your chance to ask them before we end in a few minutes. Part of the reason why I'm asking and pushing on this is because obviously this is a philosophy of education room. I'm interested in this topic. I experience the II kind of from a more educational perspective. And you are, I mean, you, I mean, you mentioned this, you are running classes i mean you're running kind of repeat salon series where you go through the history of philosophy or aren't you doing one with jason crawford the story of industrial civilization yeah. it's really interesting so i think kind of by default i am a pedagogue i come from a family of pedagogues and you know i used to teach at university and i'm very you know i'm very passionate about teaching people not that i always know what i'm talking about but you know i can i can pretend i can come across as if i did and but i think the key difference and this is why you know bringing up entertainment and a little bit of decadence and, you know, the glass of wine and the feet up. I think it's important because 
education has an end goal in some sense, right? You don't go to university to stay there forever. I mean, some people do, but that's a different kind of pathology. You know, you should be, it should be, you know, one of the stops in your life. And then you should get, you know, the moniker on your identity that you went to that school and then you bugger off. What we do doesn't have an end goal. And we very strongly fight what I call the utility tyranny. Like you should have in your life stuff that doesn't have an immediate goal. You know, it's also I welcome consumer society where it's due, but, um, but there should be things in your life that you just do kind of lab for lab. And I think that those are the best things in life, right? Um, that's what, you know, makes it worth living, the stuff that doesn't go on your CV. So, yes, we are education, but in the kind of finite versus infinite game, you know, we don't think of ourselves as, you know, a kind of you enter on the left and then we make something of you and then you exit on the right. It's more like you come to the city and then you can move in or you can just come visit sometimes and, and then you find out what's happening there and, and engage. The same way as, I don't know, if you go and watch King Lear at the theater, you will learn a lot, but you won't necessarily consider that education. If you want to go and learn how to write a King Lear, first yeah. of all, good luck, but also, you know, that is education and because you will expect the result, right? If you can't at the end of that course and you still can't write a play, then you can, you know, ask for your money back. You know, that might not happen at an intern tax salon. Maybe we are just very clever in business. That's true. And that makes sense. I think that there is an aspect of education, the kind of moral liberal arts aspect, say, of an education that runs through like high school and university that is more kind of infinite and less kind of utility oriented or goal oriented. And it feels like a continuation of that. But that's that's not the whole of education, obviously. Even within that, I think even the context um, as an adult and in the AI specifically, it's, it's kind of transformed what that means. Yeah, maybe like the or maybe like the preschool times, you know, because you know there. I mean, you know much more about this, and Katrina, you know much more about this. The school as the factory, I think, much more of like the teacher with a capital T. You know, Jesus sits down. People sit around and then have a conversation and it's infinite, right? It's infinite learning. You have the master and it's the humanness. The humanness is shared. You too can become the master. It's not a TED talk when somebody's on the stage with this enormous kind of epistemological distance between the speaker and the audience. So in that sense, yeah, it's, it is teaching. We have Simon on the stage. Simon, do you want to ask a question? Hi. Yes. Thank you very much. Good evening. Uh, really nice to listen tonight. I guess one or two pieces of context. I, in December, found Visa on Twitter and kind of stumbled across a funny scene on Twitter, which I've much enjoyed. And I very much resonated with what you just talked about, Anna, the intellectual orphan. Never heard that term, but uh, definitely applies, including uh, crushing loneliness in London. Seems to be a common theme. I think I'll be in your salon tomorrow night um, the tell your life story and get books excited for that and yeah my question is how can one help you or as a kind of a newbie to your whole thing what are the best avenues of participation question mark participation as a salon participant i don't know just in general i mean i thought maybe you could have to get what. started yeah i guess so oh, yeah first of all like Pick a salon and email me at anna at and I will send you a complimentary ticket. And that's how you get started. 
that's nice. I already paid for two, <laughs> but I'll, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> okay. I think just dive in. You know, it's the, one of the weird things about the infinite game is that it's like a river. Like you just have to get started ad hoc at some point. It's not like a school that will start on the 1st of September. So just like pick a time that works for you and then just go. <laughs> nice. I appreciate that. Well, I think I will uh, see you tomorrow. And if I'm not Amazing. wrong, I think good it's your salon. Yeah, okay, good, good. <laughs> okay. Appreciate you. Thank you. So I think that that's a natural stopping point. So thank you so much, Anna. And if you want to follow mm -hmm. Anna, you should find her on Twitter for sure, the Anna Gat. And what is it? It's interintellect underscore. Is that your Twitter? What is the interintellect yeah. website? Yeah, interintellect.com is our website. And on Instagram and on Twitter, it's interintellect and underscore because somebody has the, <laughs> the handle and we don't have enough money to uh, chase them around yet, but soon. Okay. Thanks for so much for joining us, Anna. And um, yep, we'll you. be back next week with other topics. I just was communicating with Dagny. It's not going to be here next week, but it'll be somebody else. We're figuring it out. Thank yeah, you, Anna, so much. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was a blast as always. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. Take care. Speak soon. Bye bye. -bye.